welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, April 14th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. She has her own podcast called Spotlight, which is on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How are you doing? Oh, I uh, we are doing well, thank you. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Peter is in Texas, I believe. I'm not sure. <laughs> I and heard you know... That- Texas, Texas has, has a whorehouse in it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not why he's there. That's not why he's there. <laughs> okay, let's get that clear. But Peter will be with us at the end of the uh, end of the broadcast to give us last week's trivia answer and a new question. So never fear, Peter Felicia is here. All right. So first up in our review section, all three of us, Michael, Jenna, and I, and I think Peter also, but he won't be reporting this week on it. We got down to Circle and Square Theater to see the um, St. Anne's Warehouse, Sexy Oklahoma. Uh, So, Michael, why don't you get us started on Oklahoma? Well, I know that uh, James uh, has been calling it um, Sexy Oklahoma, as he said. Uh, But I've heard other people calling it Noklahoma. Oh, Oh, ouch. Which is really kind of clever. And not necessarily um, a derogatory remark because uh it could be just taken to mean that it's so different from any production of oklahoma you've seen that it's not oklahoma doesn't necessarily mean it's bad but i think a lot of people are going to find that uh at least some sections of it uh fit that adjective um i did not hate as much of it as i thought I would based on what I had heard and read. Uh, the, this uh, production, it it's, feels like it opened initially quite some time ago at St. Anne's, and it had a run there, and then there, it got a lot of press, and uh, you know now it's moved to Circle in the Square, and there's lots of articles and stuff, and it, I, I kind of feel like it's been difficult to avoid reading about it. And I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I guess there was a time when I used to uh, try to avoid reading about things before I go. Uh, and th- there is a virtue of going in cold to a production, but I think it depends. And I also have learned that I uh, that reading and hearing about things beforehand does not necessarily by any means alter my opinion because I, you know, I, 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 I'm still pretty good at being able to agree or disagree Um just on my own feelings and not what uh, the consensus seems to be if there is a consensus. But anyway, I thought that a great deal of this production worked very well, mostly when they were when they were <clears throat> sticking, you know, pretty close to a traditional uh, performance of this Rodgers and Hammerstein classic. Uh, for example, I would say that the entire subplot involving Adu Annie and Will Parker and uh, – the peddler, Ali Hackham, I would say that all of that is played almost 100% traditionally uh, in terms of the conception of the characters and their relationships and and all of that. Uh, the only uh, 
uh, obvious difference is that uh, Ado Annie is played by the wonderful Ali Stroker, who is in a wheelchair. And I, I, I guess that's a big difference in a way, but it's an outward difference. It, it's not doesn't change the core of the character. Um, so I thought whenever those three were on stage that this was a really wonderful show. And it was uh, the Oklahoma that we all know and love to, to a very large extent. Uh, also, I thought uh, somehow um, that Damon Dono, D-A-U-N-N-O, as Curly, uh, he, um, although he maybe physically is not 100% what you see in your head uh, in, in terms of uh, past Curlys such as Gordon McRae and Patrick Wilson and Hugh Jackman, uh, I I thought he was also really quite uh, – quite in the line of the tradition and he sang the role really really well he had this this little yodeling thing in his voice that makes it sound this, these wonderful songs sound really quite authentically country western um uh, he was helped by the fact that their arrangements i i thought for this uh, production are, are really wonderful only seven pieces uh but the music is so melodic and so so great in itself that it, you know, it doesn't need 40 pieces, although it's nice to hear. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, I think that, that the musical end of it was, was for the most part handled very well. Um, but then, uh, well, to, to, to just get into the negative, uh, right from the beginning, uh, I, I guess the first 10 minutes or so, I thought I was going to hate this because for some reason this director daniel fish has completely reconceived uh the roles of laurie and her aunt eller uh laurie played by rebecca naomi jones from the moment she comes on at the beginning of the show she is incredibly surly and mean and angry and treats curly like shit and meanwhile, sitting there is uh, Aunt Eller, played by Mary Testa, not churning butter, but making cornbread in this production. And she is um, also just extremely sarcastic and and very, very cold towards Curly, who's come to to court Laurie and and and. Uh, Theoretically, to ask her, invite her to come to him to come with him to the picnic. Uh, but she, yeah, she. It's like it's like both of these women can't stand that this person is here and would like him to go away immediately. I do not understand what is gained by reconceiving that scene in this way, and it took it really damaged the show for the whole that whole first fifteen minute scene that includes the beautiful oh what a beautiful morning and sorry with the fringe on top, and it really wasn't till Will Parker. Uh, played by the wonderful Will Brill, who came on, that the show started to get some life. And then he was followed by Ali Stroker, and then things started to really uh, get enjoyable. I would say that um, the darker aspects of the story are sledgehammered home in this production, and uh, you know, to the point where it would have been much better if they had just been uh, you know, more subtly treated. We Audiences are not stupid they really are not and and i think they can see a lot of the the darkness under here the the, the um the relationship uh 
well, specifically the, the presence of the character of Judd Fry, um, who is is really has always been a very interesting character in in this in this uh, show. I, I, I Frank Rich wrote an amazing article for uh, Vulture, uh, yeah. the mm-hmm. New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just wanted to read a little bit of, of it because I think it's so amazing. He says, um, which is not to say that Oklahoma, its dark shadows notwithstanding, is innocent of whitewashing American history. The farmers and cowmen of the show may be sometimes at odds, but their collisions are mild compared with the cataclysmic conflict left off stage, the foundational story of Indian territory where the show takes place. As lore has it, Oklahoma in Choctaw means red people. Many of the territory's Indian residents had been dumped there by Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act, which mandated the evacuation of Native Americans from their ancestral homes at Bayonet Point. And then he goes on to tell the very, very sad history of all of that. Um, he he talks about Lynn Riggs, who wrote the original play, Green Grow the Lilacs, on which Oklahoma is born, and says how uh, Lynn Riggs was, was part – Indian, uh, Native American. And then um, he says uh, uh, later on, the character of Judd Fry is called Jeter in Lilacs. His real life prototype, according to Oklahoma scholar Tim Carter, was Jeter Davis, 1889 to 1958, quote, a contemporary of Riggs who was also half Cherokee and the town drunk. So that is what Judd is supposed to be. I always used to think uh, when I was a kid, um, there's a line in the beginning, towards the beginning of the show, where Curly uh, is talking to Ann Eller and he describes Judd as a bullet colored, growly man. And I always thought, bullet colored? Well, is he supposed to be black? Um, and I always thought that it would be really interesting to do the show. With a black Judd Fry, uh, I, I mean, I've thought that for decades. Now I, I'm reading that it really would be more accurate for him to be Native American. But either way, the point is that you know what we had here is a land grab, and the whole history of America being built up, and 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 the myth of it is not always what the reality uh, turns out to be when you actually read about it and how these people were treated. Um, so it's uh, it's really a lot more complicated than than we think. And some people think of uh, Green Grow the Lilacs and Oklahoma as these, these homespun little creations, but they're really, really a lot more complicated. On top of all of that, uh, Stephen Sondheim has infamously said that Oklahoma, uh, the musical, is about gay cowboys, which was, I guess, this flip little joke comment he made based on the fact of knowing that Lynn Riggs was, in fact, gay. And I I also used to think when I was a kid that Lynn Riggs was a woman, because Lynn is not a common name for a man, but Lynn Riggs was, in fact, a man. So there's a lot going on in Oklahoma and a lot of dark stuff along with the wonderful light vaudeville musical comedy stuff. Uh, And Daniel Fish in this production has chosen to underline and sledgehammer the dark stuff, I think, to a point that is really not necessary. Uh, The violence at the ending of this, I I think, is really counterproductive and just takes the audience out of the show and makes the very ending almost nonsensical. So I, uh, I found my feelings 
veering wildly back and forth during this show, as I, I think my, <laughs> you can tell from what I'm just from what I'm saying now. And I'm very curious to hear what both of you thought of it. All right. Jenna, what'd you think? Um, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and, and yes, Michael, this is about as subtle as a sledgehammer, as you just <laughs> said. Uh, James, according to, uh, to Matt, you texted him that this was less uh, sexy Oklahoma than angry Oklahoma. Yes, angry Oklahoma. Yeah, um, I, I like that uh, that name for it. Um, it. Fish's direction really emphasizes all of the anger and the danger and the violence and bitterness that was in Oscar Hammerstein II's book and lyrics. Um, and, and, and like most musical revivals, Fish does this without changing a word of the original text. And normally I'd say it's really refreshing to hear a 75-year-old musical with its original book, music, and lyrics intact. Uh, except that, as we've all been saying, very little about this production can be described as refreshing. Uh, I mean, this is as disturbing as a Candor and Ebb show. I was waiting for the MC to walk out at one point. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't ask the audience to like it. And that is kind of refreshing in a way. The show reveals a lot of that darkness by shining blindingly bright lights uh, into every nook and cranny of that original script. And it doesn't expect the audience to cheer. And that is where the show works. Uh, the story hasn't changed, but the way we see it has. And that's always the problem with revivals that constantly get revised and adapted so that they fit contemporary values and contemporary mores. Um, this show doesn't. It doesn't change any of those words. And we cringe at some of those moments because now we see them in very different lights. When Laurie complains that Judd scares her, I just sat there shivering and I could see quite a few other women in the theater squirming as well because of those blinding bright lights. Um, some of the moments are played alternately in total darkness so that we can hear every breath as uh, as Curly is encouraging Judd to kill himself. And we see, or we hear more accurately, how cruel and sadistic that moment is. And it's chilling. It's horrifying. And it makes its point. But like you said, it makes its point like a sledgehammer. Um, and that's where you know, the moments where the show doesn't work and it comes down a lot in a lot of ways to Fish's pacing. Some scenes drag on too long, some pauses lose their tension. And instead of keeping the audience on the edge of their seats, I was noticing people looking at one another from across the stage during a, a few scenes. And I'm guilty of that, too. I, I know they were looking around at one another because I was watching them rather than watching some of the actors. Um, there are quite a few points where Fish is focused more on the concept than on the material. And I think that's when the show is at its weakest. Uh, strip, yeah, strip down to the, these raw elements. I mean, even the boards of the stage are raw, unshellacked wood. And shout out to Laura Jelinek. Jelinek, sorry, Laura Jelinek's um, a very impressive scenic design, beautiful work. Um, the production is thought-provoking and it's fascinating, but when the concept itself becomes the focus, the show loses its energy and the audience starts looking across the thrust stage at one another. Um, it, fortunately, if the direction is uneven, the cast is uniformly excellent. I will give shout outs to all of them. And Rebecca Naomi Jones is a tough and undiluted Laurie. And I kind of liked her attitude. I liked the way that she is tries to take control of a situation in a time and place where she would have very little control. 
Um, Damon Dono uh, is a very charming curly, and yes, I like the uh, the country music flair that he gives his songs. That was a nice touch. Mary Testa's Aunt Eller, we see her sass from the beginning. That's how the character has always been written. But then gradually it goes from sassy to rather intimidating level of control. And she handles those traditions very lightly so that the Ann Eller we see by the end is completely different from the Ann Eller we started out with. But it was always there. It's a very believable transformation. Um, Wanted to give a shout out to Gabrielle Hamilton, who gets the Dream Ballet as a solo. Uh, She dances beautifully, but... This is a misfire. Uh, John Higginbotham's choreography for this dream ballet doesn't convey the sense of confusion or honestly, it, it didn't seem to convey much of the emotion at all, especially if this is meant to be reflecting Laurie's inner dilemma. I, I did not get a lot of that. Uh, Miss Higginbotham danced absolutely beautifully, and I would love to see her in other projects, but the Dream Ballet here just felt like it went on too long and it didn't gel. Again, it was down. It came down more to concept than than execution. Uh, you know, there are actors on stage or uh, stagehands or actors, I couldn't see who was holding them, uh, holding cameras to give close-ups of Miss Higginbotham, uh, of sorry, Miss Hamilton's face while she was dancing, and it, it felt very postmodern and very next generation. But how is this reflecting Laurie's inner dilemma? That's what the moment is supposed to be, and I don't think it worked in that extent. Uh, James Davis, Will Brill, they get the comic relief. It was Will Parker and Ali Hackham. They have terrific comic timing. They break a lot of the tension, and they do a really good job with it. Uh, Ali Stroker, uh, she can do absolutely no wrong. She steals every moment she's on stage. She is funny. She is fiery. She sings powerfully. And I, I cannot wait. I, I just love the idea that she is doing the show and we are seeing an Edo Annie in a wheelchair. And why the hell not? Why haven't we seen this before? And and every time I see Ali Stroker on stage, I mean, I got to see her at Paper Mill uh, in Putnam County Spelling Bee a couple of years ago. I'm torn between thinking this is so great that she's breaking down so many barriers and then thinking, oh, God, why has it taken so long for someone to break down these barriers? Uh, She is fantastic. I will see her in anything. Um, I'm very conflicted by the production's treatment of Judd. Uh, And I'd be interested to hear your guys' take on the role. Is he a misunderstood loner or is he a bitter incel? The text supports both interpretations, but Fish seems to want to have it both ways. And while a misunderstood loner can certainly be an incel, it just makes it hard to know where our sympathies should lie. And Patrick Vale seems to play the role both ways. Uh, I'd love to interview him and hear his take on the role. He has tears in his eyes during Poor Judd is Dead, and we know this because of, again, the cameras right on stage giving close-ups of all of the actors. Um But then he sings Lonely Room, and all of that sympathy dries up as he's talking about getting a woman as though she's a commodity. Mm. Well, I mean, incels express that. And it's really interesting that you brought up the incel thing because uh, I was going to talk about it and doing a little bit of research. uh, A lot of other folks, it's uh, Sarah Holdren in in Vulture in her review talked about him. And uh, there is actually an interview in Theater Mania – that is uh, Zachary Stewart interviews um, Patrick Vale uh, about Judd being an incel. 
uh, and that's on Theater Mania. The so I'll, I'll throw those in the show notes, but keep going, Thank Jenna. You. It's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. No, well, and oh, we, should, uh, we should we uh, should uh, an incel is somebody who is involuntarily celibate, and they are you uh, you know angry white man usually uh, usually you know, kind of yeah. like the mass murderer you know type of people. As no, they I think to be. Yeah. I think sorry. you're right. Uh, no, I, I'm sorry. I think you're right. I think he is both, and I think. Uh, but I also think it's interesting that. For all the multiculturalism of this of this production, I mean, uh, Laurie is black, and Eller, her Anne Eller is white, uh, but I so maybe it's thought of as more as colorblind. But it would have been so obvious, uh, and I, as I said, for decades I thought it would be really interesting to see Judge be Judd be a person of color, and yet. They went the exact opposite direction uh, because I guess it's supposed to be more of a – yeah, he's a, he's the angry white man who's feeling uh, left out. But that doesn't fit in with what was happening in Oklahoma at the time. So that seems confused. If you know, And also – Well, I, I wonder if this Oklahoma is really talking about Oklahoma of then or is it trying to reflect upon mm. American society today? Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, exactly. I think that's extremely unclear. I mean, the, the yes. costuming, uh, yeah. I guess the men's costuming could be either, but the women's costuming is clearly of the present day. I mean, uh, the men's so- costuming looks like uh, hipsters in Brooklyn. <laughs> I guess maybe some of them do, but it's it's not, you know, I mean, there was references to Oklahoma becoming a state. Yeah. So obviously mm-hmm. it's supposed to be the early 1900s. Sure. And yeah. yet in, in other things make market as you're supposed to think it's happening right now. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that's just a lack of a decision being made rather than, you know, the director might say, I'm just being creative. Someone else might say, you're not making a decision. Mm. But it's also kind of interesting from the incel argument to look at Judd compared to Will. Both of them over the course of the show lose the – are rejected by the women. I shouldn't say lose. That sounds like a possession. Uh, They are rejected by the women that they want at various points. And Judd turns to violence. Will threatens the man who he thinks she has chosen and says Mm. you better love her. Mm. You have to love her or I'll kill you. Mm. And I think that says a lot about the difference between the two of them. This is, you know, the hero versus the antagonist. The hero is hurt by the rejection, but his primary concern is for Edo Annie. And is she going to find love? And I think that says a lot about Will right there. Whereas Judd, when he realized he's been rejected and he feels played with, then maybe he was. I mean, Laurie pretty much says she only... Uh, accepted Judd's invitation to the party to make Curly jealous. She is using him. I mean, that's a lousy thing to do. Yeah, but even there, in this pretty, you left you left out something very significant. I, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but the, the one scene that Laurie and Judd have together, um, right uh, before, well, they're on the way to the party, uh, that is another scene that part of it is played in complete darkness. And while that darkness is existing, we're hearing these sounds that make it clear that they are being very, very physically intimate with each other. And then the lights come up and then uh, she gets mad at him and she fires him. 
So that's something that's not in the original script, that they're they're not supposed to be making love at that point. And I, I guess Fish is underlining the fact that Laurie is conflicted. Uh, I mean, people have said from the beginning that there's that she does have uh, one interpretation is that she is sexually drawn to Judd, but she realizes that he's, you know, he's not part of the community and he's not the kind of man she's supposed to be with. And he's an outsider, whether he's a black person or an Indian or whatever. Uh, in this production, he's neither of those. Um, so they have a very, 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 uh, very, very contentious and very complicated relationship. Uh, the Frank Rich article that I read was reading from before, he also says that uh, Hammerstein was fascinated by the character of Jeter in Green Road, the Lilacs, and he was um, very concerned about the character and and challenged by how to portray him in the musical. It says, but he never considered eliminating the character because he thought that if he did that, there would be no drama in the piece whatsoever. So I think that tension and uh, you know is really reflected in the piece. And although you could say it's a flaw, you could say it's a huge flaw in Oklahoma, or you could say it's what makes it a classic. So let me uh, throw something out here. Uh, I, I, I came into this having uh, known Oklahoma inside and out, seeing a bunch of productions, being in productions of Oklahoma. Uh, you know, I, I really know it. My wife had never, ever seen a production or, you know, known anything about Oklahoma. And she matter-of-factly said, uh, I had to fire him, too, if he tried to rape me. And I said, oh, that's interesting, because maybe that wasn't voluntarily in the darkness that maybe mm. he was forcing Except himself the sound, the, could... the sounds didn't sound like that to me. It sounds it, it, like she no. was really loving what was happening. Uh, it, that's what I thought. And that's maybe a problem with the constant blackouts that we can't hmm. see if she's pulling away from him and he's trying to stop her. Maybe that's why he did it. Well, and, but I mean, she, uh, you know, the the scenes that uh, that preceded that, that she's like, I, I don't really want to be in that. I, I don't want to go with him alone in the coach. And, you know, she her spidey senses were tingling that. uh <laughs> Oh yes, that, you know he he gave off that totally creepy vibe, you know, yeah. from you know hundreds of feet away. We were oh, everybody oh, no. was like, oh. I I think she's what's supposed it's supposed to be is that she's simultaneously attracted yeah. and and repulsed by him. I mm. I really think that's that's absolutely what it's supposed to be, and that is. Uh, in the original version of the quote unquote dream ballet, which originally was brilliantly choreographed by Agnes DeMille, that was made crystal clear that this is the subtext of what is going on in Laurie's mind. This production, right. as Jenna said, had absolutely n nothing to do with that. And yeah. I thought it was at an absolute low point. Again, not the fault of the dancer. No, uh, the dancer was great. But of the choreographer, uh, uh, John Higginbotham. Uh, let's yeah. uh, turn the microphone back over to Jenna. <laughs> um, I, I don't have too much else to add. I wanted to, uh, um, oh, and Michael, yes, I agree with you about the orchestrations. Daniel Kluger's orchestrations mm -hmm. and arrangements in music direction, uh, adjusting a score written for a huge orchestra into a score for seven and 
occasionally eight-piece band cannot have been easy. Kluger did a beautiful job with reducing the, uh, not re- I, sh- I shouldn't say reducing, that sounds terrible, um, but streamlining the instruments so that the onstage band sitting in pits, uh, you know, they're right there on the stage with the actors. It's beautiful. Uh, they do. He did a really beautiful job, and they sounded terrific. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to... Uh, I wanted to add a little like personal anecdote. Um, the first time I saw Oklahoma, like for many other people, was at a high school production. Uh, my parents were both teachers for many years, and I would go with them to all of the plays and musicals that their schools did. Um, I remember uh, seeing this production of Oklahoma at my mother's school, and during Poor Judd is Dead, I glanced over and my mother had tears in her eyes. And at intermission, she told me that the student playing Judd was not involved in a lot of extracurricular activities, and he had a really hard time socializing. But since he tried out for the school musical, he was suddenly passionate about something, and he was invested and excited. This was something he cared about. And she was so happy to see her student so involved in something for the first time. I haven't had the chance to ask my mom uh, about that moment since uh, I saw the show this week. But um, now I'm wondering if she wasn't also really disturbed by Curly's tormenting Judd and if she knew that student wasn't being bullied, too. And if she really connected the character with the actor uh, all those many years ago in a high school in New Jersey. Um, I was suddenly reminded of that watching uh, that moment and just being so traumatized by it, how horrifying it was. I suddenly remembered a high school kid sitting up on a stage and my mother being so moved by it. And that moment really suddenly came back to me. And I have to check in with her and find out what was that kid's story. And of course, she really can't share that uh, student-teacher confidentiality and all. But um, I've been trying to find a riff on uh, Matt Tamanini's line about the the Batman line. It's not the Oklahoma we deserve. It's the Oklahoma we need. But, you know, this is the Oklahoma we deserve and we need. We need to see the story told by people who would not have been on stage in 1943. We deserve to see the story from the viewpoint of sexism and racism and ableism and all those other isms. We deserve to be uncomfortable when we think about the colonization of this country. And we deserve to be uncomfortable when we think about what's happening in this country right now. A lot of it has not changed as much as we would like to comfort ourselves by thinking it has. And we should be uncomfortable when we think about that. Uh, This is not a crowd-pleasing, big, lavish production. And this is not, like I said earlier, it does not ask us to like it, uh, much like a Kander and Ebb show. And... To me, it's dramatically very effective. But if you go in expecting a big crowd-pleasing musical comedy, you'll be very uncomfortable. And maybe that's a good thing. I would say it asks us to like it in the scenes involving Ado Annie, Will Parker, and the peddler. Fair I, enough. I, I, Fair yeah, enough. And, and I have never felt that this seemed like two different musicals. I have never felt that as, as much as I do in this production. So that's another uh, another very odd aspect of it. So I happen to be sitting next to a family from Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Was in town and got tickets to Oklahoma. Uh, And they had seen other productions of Oklahoma and knew it a little bit. Um, And uh, I was really expecting when the lights came up at intermission for them to be very upset. And they seemed to really 
enjoy it. They were in their 60s, 50, 60s or 70s maybe or something like that. So they'd seen a lot of life. Uh, and then also at intermission, I saw a number of people angry and storming out and not coming back. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't notice that. Uh, so they were... Uh, we happened to be upstairs. We were upstairs uh, at Circle in the Square in the lobby and saw uh, three or four people just raging about how they were upset about this pr- production and, and leaving and not coming back for the second act. So I, I thought, you know, this is um, this is a production that uh, people are not going to get what they may expect. And the thing that you had uh, talked about, the history of America before, uh, Matt and I were talking about, uh, Matt Tamanini on on Today on Broadway, we're talking about uh, the whole Make America Great Again. This is the period of time that they thought that the Make Make America Great Again people are thinking that America was great. And so Mm -hmm. there were certainly a lot to be... Uh, seen here insofar as Michael your talk your discussion about Laurie's um, uh, opening and yes. being so bitter and things like that uh, it was odd it was a very odd choice to me I agree but also it gave Laurie a place to move from you know one of the things about Laurie in other productions is that she it's really hard to have a journey when you're going mm. from lovely, beautiful, and light to lovely, beautiful, and light plus curly. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I thought it gave Re- Re- Rebecca Naomi Jones a great place to, uh, to go on a journey and uh, take us along with her. Um, one of the things, uh, some of the physical production, I loved, loved, loved the sound and lighting for this show. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and and I think that's a mixture of Circle of Squares uh, circumstances that you are very close to the actors. But the thing is, is that it seemed like they perfectly turned on the microphones when they needed it and they turned off the microphones when they didn't need it. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. You, and again, that's a function of Circle of Square. You're so close to the actors that, mm. that you can actually get away with uh, – uh, 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 sound being uh, amplification being a um, a uh, something that you can be very delicate with the lighting basically on and off type of thing <laughs> uh, very very bright or pitch blackness and the occasional green wash or blue wash uh, I thought really worked well the live video projections you, uh, both of you talked about the video being um, used it's projected on the back wall Right. Uh, throughout the production, especially in the Dream Ballet and some of the uh, the Judd and Curly uh, scene, uh, and the, the, that technology and, and those technicians, I think while they were doing it in total blackness, I think it it uh, it worked well because the technician on stage, the stagehand that is uh, broadcasting that is not really seen by the audience. So that sort of works much better in blackness, although I think much of it went on too long. I think the Dream Ballet went on too long, and Gabriel mm. Hamilton is amazing, amazing dancer. Yeah. Uh, and 
um, interesting to move that uh, move that uh, to the Act Two opener around. Uh, nobody talked about the chili at, at intermission. Pretty good chili and cornbread. So. <laughs> that was good chili, wasn't it? <laughs> Vegan chili. I, <laughs> yes. I had I had just made some cornbread with that same Jiffy mix a uh, few days before. <laughs> So it was so funny to see Mary Testa like pouring these boxes of, of Jiffy Mix into this huge bowl at the beginning, and I assume they use that actual. I was wondering, yeah, mix. do they? And yeah, the, I, and the eggs and the milk and. The... Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's got the whole thing. So it'll be a waste not to take it off stage, throw it in an oven, bake it up. Why yeah, not? I guess that's what they do. <laughs> uh, oh, I forgot about the Oklahoma family. Uh, oh yeah, the Oklahoma family. Um, they were uh, – I was sort of eavesdropping, and <laughs> they were – he said something very interesting. We don't talk like that. Uh, and I thought that some of the accents were – the Oklahoma accents were a little bit over the top and caricatures and derogatory, and I guess well, I heard – Tremendously inconsistent. Yeah, and and, and some one, of them one had to the yeah, next. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like Robin, watching Kevin Costner's Robin Hood. So um, – <laughs> You know, uh, I guess other productions of Oklahoma, you do have varying degrees of huge accents, but I'm hoping when you get to the Broadway level that, uh, you know, uh, there would have been, uh, I guess it was intentional because it seems like every detail of this production was thought out and I can't imagine the accents would slip by. I guess that was a choice and an intention of... Mm, I mean, I, I don't think every detail was thought out. I think it, it was like, what it, what new idea can I throw in that's mm. going to throw people for a loop? And I don't think yes. that they, I don't think that a lot of those ideas work together. And I that, really exactly, don't. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and and the innovation is great. It's wonderful to see a very different take on a show, especially when it's all supported by the text and you don't have to change a word of the text to support the new interpretation. But yeah, a lot of this did feel like throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and seeing, okay, what sticks? Yes. And and I'm sure that's that was not the process. I don't want to insult Mr. Fish's work, but um when it works, it's brilliant. And when it doesn't work, it really feels like a letdown because the brilliance is so strong. The brilliant moments are so strong that it makes the weaker moments that much weaker. So the last thing I'll say, which may make some people angry, is that I wish Daniel Fish had directed Carousel. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. It would have been fascinating, you know, without removing the, yes, it's possible for someone to hit you and for it not to hurt at all, without removing those moments. Yeah. Can you make the characters sympathetic or do you give up trying to make them sympathetic and just let it be horrifying by our standards today? I don't know what the answer would be. All right. So we've talked extensively about uh, Oklahoma and Peter will be back next week and we'll try to get his thoughts on Oklahoma as well. Let's move forward into uh, White Noise. Uh, Peter and I talked about it last week, but uh, Michael and Jenna saw it. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on White Noise? Well, I saw a really good play called White Noise about uh, about race relations, uh, and I saw that play in 2006 <laughs> at the New York Musical Theater Festival. I love that musical. Wasn't that good? It really, really was. And yeah. I thought that was going to go somewhere. That was a, a musical about uh, based on truth on this uh, true uh, actual group called uh, uh, Prussian Blue. 
Prussian blue. Yes, I'm sorry, I had it here and then I lost it. Uh, and there was these two girls who were white cr- Christians, and they would sing uh, songs that were, uh, I, I got well um, among other things, but mostly about white separatism, and uh, and all of that 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 implies. And they, I think, they got kind of a toehold. Uh, you know, in in culture, and then I guess they went away. I haven't actually. Do, do you have any idea, Jenna, what happened to them? Uh, what happened to Prussian Blue? Or, yeah. Oh, they uh, they apparently changed their minds. They got away from white nationalism and Nazism, and they have uh, repented. I don't know that they've That's like good. taken down their music from social media platforms, but uh, I believe once they got a little bit older and they learned a bit more history, they uh, they changed their ways. So I read. Well, anyway, I I really liked that. Uh, play that musical, and I thought it was going to go elsewhere. And there were there were there was movement to to move it, uh, you know, and to expand it, and to maybe bring it to Broadway eventually. But that didn't happen. So instead, we have a play uh, called White Noise by Susan Laurie Parks, directed by Oscar Eustace at the Public Theater. And it's a uh, to me, this is a really interesting premise that you might want to uh, talk about for an academic argument for a few minutes. Because it doesn't really make any sense whatsoever because it's about an adult black male who decides that he wants to um, become the slave of his his best – his old best friend uh, for a certain period of time, uh, 40 days, uh, and then – as a result of that, uh, at the end of the, that time, the uh, the white guy will pay him eighty nine thousand dollars. So, first of all, I mean, there there are many reasons why that doesn't even remotely equate to actual slavery, the actual slavery that is a blot on our country and and for where, from which we will never recover. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, the level of reality in this play, the level of quote unquote reality keeps constantly shifting. Uh, for example, um, the the central character played by David Diggs, uh, Leo, uh, he, he he's the one, you know, he he's the one who wants to do this. And even his motivation for doing it is 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 very, very unclear something about how he uh he it happens after he's assaulted on the street uh one day and he he wants to um not take responsibility for himself he wants to cede responsibility for himself to uh to someone else namely his master uh, you know, who's going to be his best friend, who's a white guy who he's known for years. And somehow he, he thinks this is going to protect him. But it's all, a, 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 you know, a, a really kind of somewhat interesting but weird academic argument that doesn't doesn't comport with any kind of reality. So he uh, he has a contract drawn up, and then we see the contract notarized. Uh, you know, the contract that's going to bind him in slavery to his friend, uh, played by Thomas Sadowski, his friend Ralph, played by Thomas Sadowski. But you know, since it's completely illegal, what's the point of the notary? Uh, I, I mean, every everything in it is just just really really silly. Um, 
the metaphor of the title is is very confused. Uh, white noise in this case, I mean, uh, there's the obvious double meaning, but it also refers to the fact that Leo um, has a big monologue at the beginning about how he has insomnia and uh, he's trying uh, a white noise machine uh, to help him sleep, and 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 that has that has worked, but it's. All right. So then, what is the what is the white noise machine to help him sleep have to do with race relations? Uh, and what is and for that matter, what does his insomnia have to do with the, the with the rest of the story? This play is, aside from everything else, uh, at least uh, forty five minutes longer than it needs to be. It's it's three hours long and it's self indulgent and it did not need to be that long. So I think somebody should have sat Lo- Susan Laurie Parks down and said, "You are overwriting and this is not good and you need to cut it." But I'm can't imagine that anyone had the nerve to do that. Um, the other two characters are uh, Misha, played by Sharia Irving, and. Dawn, played by Zoe Winters, in this uh, in this play, the uh, the black man has a white girlfriend and the white man has a black girlfriend because I guess they're trying to really make it uh, as integrated as possible in that sense. Uh, as uh, suppose another comment on the subject matter, but um, there are and there are. Uh, uh, Many long monologues. Each of these characters has at least one very long monologue uh, throughout the show, where they literally step out of the action and talk and, and deliver the monologues to the audience. Uh, again, none of these monologues, to my mind, had anything to do with the subject matter. Uh, some of them did illuminate the characters, but I but it didn't seem to again have any any bearing on what was happening in the play. So I, I just thought they were a tremendous waste of time and that would have been uh, a good place to start cutting. Um, what else? Uh, it's, um, uh, well, the set is, uh, I, I, as I said about the, the, this, the, um, the Oklahoma that we were discussing, the level of reality seems to constantly keep changing. There are many moments where it seems like this is supposed to be more or less realistic. And then all of a sudden, incredibly weird, odd, unrealistic things keep happening. Um, the uh, There's a scene uh, that takes place, several scenes that take place at a bowling alley. Uh, and that is staged very interestingly with actual bowling balls. Uh, Peter discussed it last week. But... Um, I guess we're supposed to think that at one point in this bowling alley during normal hours, two of the characters are having sex in one of the lanes. And then later on, there's another scene where, uh, where uh, uh, you know, severe violence is happening uh, in this bowling alley. Um, so I, I, that didn't make any sense to me either. Although the uh, actual set design by Clint Ramos was, was really interesting. Um, and lighting design by Xavier Pierce, costume design, Tony Leslie James. Um, Oscar Eustace, the director, I, I don't think he um, knew any more what this was supposed to be about than the playwright did. And I thought it was very self-indulgent and a misfire, even though there were some some really interesting moments in it, but it was so overlong and so confused that I thought it was counterproductive and I, I was really not happy with it at all. 
Okay, Jenna, what did you think of White Noise? Uh, well, I agree with um, quite a lot of what Michael said, and I agree with a lot of what Peter said uh, last week. It's a great premise. It's very academic. Uh, I do agree that the uh, the idea is unclear, though. Uh, Leo, David Diggs' character, he wants protection. Uh, white people have been oppressing uh, black people and him individually for years, and he has just emerged from a very traumatic experience, and he wants to feel safe again. He wants protection. And there's that famous Benjamin Franklin line, those who would give up liberty for security deserve neither. Uh, That really seems to be the thesis statement of this play. Uh, In order to have security, he is giving up his freedom. And uh, obviously, as you said, this is not on the same level as institutionalized slavery of uh, antiquity, but still, he is giving up his individuality, his his rights to someone else for a set time, for a set amount of money, and he will have to do whatever somebody else tells him in exchange for security, and that's, in a lot of ways, what people are willing to do all the time. Uh, I just came through uh, security at uh, uh, Miami International Airport the other day. The lines are all the way through the terminal. And how many actual terrorists have been caught in those uh, uh, naked body scanners that are, you know, dousing us with all kinds of radiation? We constantly give up security or give up liberty and freedoms in the name of security. And this just puts it in a very literal place. Um, The insomnia, uh, I think, represents being woke and the peace that being asleep can bring, even though if you're asleep, then you're not actually taking part in anything. You're asleep. Mm -hmm. Um, And someone, I jotted this line down, uh, someone at some point in the play says, waking up is hard to do, but staying woke is harder. Misha, played by Sharia Irving, uh, runs a TV or web series called Ask a Black, where people can ask her questions and discuss the black perspective on various issues. And she's always the one urging people to stay woke and be aware of what is going on, be aware of other perspectives and other viewpoints that, again, you know, you feeling safe because the police are on the street may make other people feel very unsafe. And and in another example of what I would say is the extreme confusion of this play, she does her show in an outrageously broad, stereotypical black Ebonics type of speech. Oh, that's code switching. And I think they address that in the script. I believe Suzanne Laurie Parks mentions the code switching. And if she doesn't, my apologies. But she discusses that in her monologue about why she feels the need to code switch. And oh, yes. She, oh, yeah. yeah. She does. <laughs> and, and right, which I actually had no problem with because that is explained. And especially over the past week with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being lamblasted for code switching, I thought that was very timely and uh, important to see. So I had no problem with the code switching, and I thought that fit the character very well and was explained in-universe very well. Um, And, uh, you know, that added a lot of complexity to the character. I thought that worked effectively. The problem is, uh, particularly the two white characters uh, are not nearly as fleshed out and complex, or rather they go from complex to caricature, and I think that weakens the overall strength of the story. 
one of the worst elements of racism, and I can only say this from the basic Becky perspective, is that it's not the Klansman holding the rally. It's the friend who will sit there and say nothing as you're insulted by the waiter. Yeah. It's the yeah. people who will just shrug and watch as a black person gets stopped and frisked and possibly dragged away for the crime of walking down the street. It's not the violence so much as it is the passivity. Um, and this play starts shifting the white characters more toward the violent end of the spectrum. And I suppose that makes it more dramatic. I mean, to literally bring up a gun in act one, mention that characters have a gun and then have the gun appear in several scenes throughout act two, the threat of violence builds tension, but it doesn't help. It doesn't help make the statement about the, the more subtle virulent forms of racism that I think the play is attempting to address. And this is, again, like we have all we have all said, uh, Suzanne Laurie Parks needs a good editor. She has a brilliant idea. She delved into it, but I think she loses focus, particularly throughout Act Two. I agree with you. The play could be trimmed by 30, 45 minutes, and the best material would still be there. She could still have this compelling, intense, powerful drama that needs to be seen, needs to be discussed. It's very thought-provoking. Um I would love to see this again, but preferably tightened up a little bit and refocused to the stronger project, uh, sorry, to the stronger parts and elements of the story. Um, The cast does beautiful jobs. I hope they stay with it. David Diggs is wonderful. Sharia Irving, Thomas Sadowski, Zoe Winters, lovely work. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out, uh, flipping through my program, getting the name, the set design, Clint Ramos's scenic design, creating a bowling, not just a lane, but, you know, a full bowling uh, venue on the stage. So the characters roll their bowling balls under the audience seats and then... I'm fairly sure those were the same bowling balls, unless they had duplicates backstage, that looped around. So underneath our seats, they've got channels for those balls to come around and reappear back on the stage again. That's brilliant. Or interns. Or God bless those interns. God bless the (laughs) interns. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's uh, brilliant. And I think kind of says something about the Ramos's skill if they really are bringing those same bowling balls back around from under the seats there's so much there that we don't get to see but it still makes the play work that the the bowling balls come back around there's all this there have to be channels and I don't know what all had to happen underneath those seats the audience never sees it all we see is the bowling ball comes back unless of course we find out that they just bought duplicates of numerous bowling balls and keep rolling the same ones back (laughs) they could do it with the cost of the cookies oh there yes those cookies damn those cookies (sighs) they keep breaking the chairs (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but yeah i mean it's a brilliant piece there's so much to admire and i would hope to see it streamlined a little bit tightened up um it's very thought-provoking very intelligent and i would love to see it go forward from here Okay, so that's uh, White Noise Down at the Public. Uh, It's playing through May 5th, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got over to Greenwich House, where the Ars Nova production of Mrs. Murray's Menagerie is playing, so tell us about that. 
Yeah, this is a production of The Mad Ones, uh, which it's my first experience of them. But uh, (laughs) this is one of the best things I've seen lately. So I'm definitely going to be putting them on my list to try to make sure I go to see everything that they do uh, henceforth. I know that uh, recently they had a show called Miles for Mary that I believe, uh, among other people, Peter was very positive about. So I I didn't see that, but I'm so glad I saw this. And I think, uh, do either of you guys know, I'm pretty sure, is this the first um, Ars Nova production in Greenwich House? Oh, I'm not sure, but... I uh, do not know. It seems like... yeah, it seems like it would be. I think if it's not the first, it's one of the first. And and that is uh, one of the most striking things about this uh, production is that I have seen Greenwich House reconfigured in many different ways, but never the way it is here. And uh, one of the uh, one amazing thing is uh, I um, I attended, uh, you know, it was an evening performance and it, it was still light out when I got to the theater because of daylight savings time. But it was starting to get dark. And then uh, I walked in and the set is supposed to be a uh, like a sort of community uh, center room in the in the 1970s where this focus group is being conducted. Conducted. Uh, all of these um, people have been gathered for a focus group um, about uh, there, there's a very popular children's show called Mrs. Murray's Menagerie. And the producers of the show are planning to spin off uh, a show from it. And they're trying to decide uh, between two different shows uh, that they have concepts for involving two uh, of the different um, animal characters in Mrs. Murray's menagerie. So uh, this is uh, the focus group to determine what, uh, which of those two shows will be the one that gets the green light. Um, so, and, and it, it's uh, apparently the, the, uh, the uh, shtick, if you will, or whatever of the mad ones is that they present these hyper, hyper, hyper realistic shows where you actually think that you are in this exact situation and everything's uh, the dialogue sounds uh, like it's all improvised and off the cuff but uh, but it's it's not it's scripted uh, and you would but you would never know it because the acting is so spontaneous and the the inflections uh, of of these incredible actors make it sound so so much like they they are just coming up with these these uh, words and these responses to the questions of of the uh, of the moderator of of the focus group um it it's it's absolutely uncanny and uh to go back to what i started to say before when you walk in it 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 is it looks like a an absolute recreation of what this kind of a room would be in some kind of you know suburban community center or actually i think it's supposed to be philadelphia that they're in but it, um uh you know it could be anywhere it's just that you know they're sitting around a, ta- a round table and uh the uh the uh, interlocutor, the the the, uh, the guy who's running the focus group, is walking around and asking questions. And at one point, he plays uh, theme songs from the the two new shows and asks them to to uh, give thumbs up or thumbs down. And he and he asks them what their favorite characters are on Mrs. Murray's Menagerie, and and they're trying to just determine what. Uh, 
where they're going to go. I, I, I don't know if either of you guys have ever been in an actual focus group. I, I have been in a few, uh, not for a while. And, and this, to me, seemed like an incredibly exact recreation of exactly what happens in those. Um, just just really, really extraordinary. But on top of all that, uh, uh, the, the recreation of the space is extraordinary, including uh, there are these uh, very large windows in uh, in Greenwich House, uh, almost floor to ceiling, not quite, but but really really large. And when you walk in, um, they are backlit to make it look as if all of this is happening uh, in broad daylight in in the middle of the afternoon. This focus group, which of course it it would be, um, so it, so either in the middle of the afternoon or late morning or whatever, uh, and. Uh, so it must be, you know, it's it, it. When I walked in, I thought, "Oh gosh, is it still that bright outside?" <laughs> it seemed like it was getting darker when I walked in, but then I realized that it was back lighting, and it's done absolutely brilliantly. Lighting designer, uh, I hasten to uh, give his name. It is Mike Inwood. Uh, costumes designed Asta Benny Hostetter. Scenic design. Yushin Chen and Laura Jelinek. Didn't that name just come up? <laughs> um, and directed by Lila Neugebauer. The cast is absolutely amazing. Um, Mark Bavino, Philip James Brannon, Joe Kernute, who uh, deserves a, a, an a Obie Award or Lortel Award for this. He was amazing. Michael Dalto, Brad Heberly, Carmen M. Herlihy, January Lavoie, Stephanie Wright Thompson. Um, the interplay between these people is is just just amazing. The 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 hyper real little microaggressions that start to happen and and little little moments of humor. And the reason I um, I singled out Joe Kernude is that his character Roger at one point uh, suddenly seems to become the antagonist. Um, he starts to give some negative responses, a bunch of negative responses in a row, and some of the others recognize this and and sort of call him out for it uh, a bit. Uh, but nothing ever gets Gets to, um, you know, they might have gone to the point where this like exploded into extreme anger and they might have uh, built to that. But this is much more realistic. It all remains under the surface and these microaggressions and there's no, uh, you know, there's no physical confrontation. There's never any yelling. And then it, it, it all just it's very passive aggressive. And then it sort of ends and everybody goes off. But I, I can't say enough ab about this. I imagine some people might find it really boring i thought it was fascinating and gripping uh just the 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 amazing level to which they were able to replicate real real life and and the kind of uh dynamic that would happen in a focus group like this so i can't recommend this uh any more highly uh than than to say go you know don't miss it go as soon as you can if you don't know this this group, the mad ones, put them on your radar the way I have now put them on mine. And I, I'm just can't wait to see what they do next. All right. That's, uh, that was Mrs. Murray's Menagerie at Ars Nova's Greenwich House. Uh, it's playing through uh, April 27th. Next up, uh, Jenna, get over to Charlie's Waiting at Theater Lab. Uh, Peter talked about it last week. So, Jenna, what's your take on this? Uh, yes, Charlie's Waiting, or otherwise known as Nobody's Talking About Charlie. Uh like you said, Peter discussed the play last week, and I really wish he hadn't given so much of the plot away. So if uh, you haven't seen the show and you'd like to, and you really should, 
don't listen to Peter's review from last week. Uh, my summary of the show would be much more vague. Uh, Louise, played by Tony nominee Xanthi Elbrick, and Kelly, played by Stephanie Heitman, are about to get married when Annie, played by Amy Scanlon, arrives and she reveals a secret about Kelly's past. The rest of the play is not about that secret, but it's about the elephant in the room as Kelly and Louise try to continue with their wedding preparations and their lives. And this is where Melissa Annis's script is at its best. She uses... Pinter-esque silences and pauses to show the pain this bombshell has caused, even as the two women keep very British stiff upper lips. And yes, the play is set in England, and the actors and the playwright are all British, or at least connected to Britain, um, which I'd be fascinated to learn how that influenced the, uh, the tone of the piece and how Pinter influenced the tone of the piece. Where I agree very strongly with Peter is that the nature of the secret and... and how the characters react to it and what they do and don't do, no spoilers, uh, but at a talk back after the performance I attended, Anna said that she wanted the she wanted to leave the ending vague enough and let the audience wonder what happened next. And I think in a way this is a disservice to the play and to the characters and to the very compelling situation that she created. The secret that she reveals midway through the play is genuinely shocking, but it involves a lot of logistics that are just never addressed. And the fact that they aren't addressed makes the characters either horrible, which they don't seem to be, or it makes the suspension of disbelief just impossible. And it brings up what Alfred Hitchcock would call fringe problems, you know, you're fine with the show until you get home and you open up the refrigerator to get a drink and then you think, well, wait a minute, what about... And in my case, I'd made it to the subway when I suddenly started thinking, well, wait a minute, what about if you start thinking about it too much, a lot of it doesn't make sense. And that is a problem with Annis's script. I really hope she's able to revise it and find a balance between letting the audience wonder what's happening off stage and what's going to happen next, but also letting everything makes sense in a realistic world. She is tackling very real problems with this play and they deserve to be treated realistically. And from what I saw this week, she's certainly capable of doing that and then some. Uh, Ludovica Villar-Hauser's direction really emphasizes the subtext beautifully and she knows how to keep a dramatic pause lasting lasting just the right amount of time. It doesn't go on too long. It doesn't cut off too quickly. <clears throat> Mr. Fish, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, in a play that's all about what people are not talking about, we need to be able to hear what the characters aren't saying. And fortunately, the three actors have fantastic chemistry together. They're able to convey a lot of emotion, even in silence, in quite a few cases, even when they are completely alone on the stage, not saying anything, just sitting there thinking. They do a beautiful job conveying that inner turmoil just through facial expressions and body movement. And that's thrilling to watch. Um, McGann George's production design, and I hope that means the set and seating design. Uh, Miriam Nilofa Crow's lighting design. Caroline Kitteridge's Faustine's sound design. I want to make sure I get all three of their names. All three go a really long way to setting the various moods. They create a sense of place and boost the tension with shadows and wind blowing off stage. People seem to vanish into the walls whenever they step out of this room. Uh, it's beautiful, raises the tension, really nice work from the uh, from the design department. 
Uh, James, on Wednesday, you were talking, uh, sorry, on Wednesdays uh, today on Broadway, you were talking about the Tootsie controversy uh, and the advertising gaffe. And it cracked me up. I loved your response to that. And I think you said you had to read down, what, 12 names before you found a woman on the creative team for the show? Was that about right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's about right. Unless I misread the program for Charlie's Waiting, the only man on the show's creative team is the assistant stage manager. So if you're looking for women telling women's stories, it is here. It's an original play. It's not based on a classic film. It addresses real problems that people have with one another. I really hope Charlie's Waiting has a long life after it closes uh, next week. It's got one more week. Uh, And I hope Melissa Annis is able to address some of the problems with the script for the next production. Uh, it really deserves to be seen again, and it deserves to have a good life after. Jenna, I had never heard refrigerator problems. That is wonderful. Yeah, really. That's, Are that's you... the uh, the equivalent of uh, the door handle. The doctor. Uh, doctors say that patients ask the most important question as they put their hand on the door to leave the office. <laughs> you know, they're like uh, patients leaving and like, oh yeah, doctor, I have this rash, but it's in this really bad place and. Stuff like so, the refrigerator thing is much more appetizing than the uh, doctor's door handle. I want to say uh, Hitchcock called it the uh, an icebox movie, uh. where the couple <laughs> comes home from seeing a movie, they go to the icebox to start making dinner, and then someone will say, "But wait a minute, what about?" <laughs> and I love that. If you go on uh, TV Tropes, a, a website I can fall into uh, black holes in so effortlessly. Oh, yeah, black holes. Cheers to the uh, just finally seeing what a black hole looks like. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, they have a whole section dedicated to fridge logic, fridge humor, fridge anything. And it's fascinating to read because you'll suddenly realize all of these logistical problems in different kinds of pop culture, including theater. They've got whole sections for theater on that site. And it points out all kinds of logistical issues, fridge logic, fridge humor, fridge problems, Hmm. whatever. Um, But it's fascinating. And you suddenly start noticing all these logistical challenges in so many forms of entertainment, books, movies, theater, anything. And yeah, fridge, fridge problems. Uh, it's always fascinating to think about. And uh, we may want to point out in our current events of the past seven days, uh, we wouldn't have a picture of a black hole if it weren't for a woman. Yes, that's so. right. <laughs> Cheers. All right. The black hole was sitting there saying, no man can photograph me. And she said, game on. Game on. Hold, here, hold my beer. Hold my beer. <laughs> okay. Hold my Cosmo. <laughs> Somebody else who says, here, hold my beer is Mary Poppins. Uh, <laughs> Michael, you got to... <laughs> Good segue. Um, Mary Poppins in concert with the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, otherwise known as NJSO. Michael, you saw it on April 13th, so tell us about this. Well, you know, I don't know about beer, but she does uh, drink rum punch in it. Uh, That's medicine that she drinks. (laughs) (laughs) This was an extraordinary evening that I only heard about happening uh, about a a week ago. And then I tried to get tickets and I did uh, really happy to get tickets for Mary Poppins in concert with the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. They um, 
they are doing three nights of it. Uh, this past Friday, April 12th, it was at the Count Basie Center for the Arts in Red Bank. I saw it last night at NJ Pack in Newark. And today at three, if you hustle, uh, you can go to the State Theater of New Jersey in New Brunswick and hear and see it there. This is uh, one of the increasingly popular situations where a film is projected and a symphony orchestra plays the score while the film is being projected. Um, in this case, uh, it sounded to me that they were not able to or chose not to remove uh, or not completely remove the original orchestra on the soundtrack, uh, as they have done in, in some of the past uh cases of this but uh but they were playing along with it and this huge i mean to hear those beautiful orchestrations of those incredible richard m and robert b sherman songs for this classic film um and you know it was projected in a, in a beautiful beautiful crystal clear digital uh restoration uh and it um, aside from everything else, the 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 sound system uh, of the of the actual soundtrack that remained was so good that I ha- have never heard Julie Andrews' voice sound so beautiful and so crystal clear. It just rang out in that beautiful hall at at uh, at NJ Pack, uh, and uh, Dick Van Dyke sounded really good as well, um, and. Uh, you know, uh, uh, th- this is a, d- a, des- a deserved classic that has now been, I guess, uh, revivified with the with the production of Mary Poppins Returns, which has been a deservedly huge hit. And in fact, I'm going to see that tonight. Uh, the friend um, with which I saw Mary Poppins in concert last night, uh, he has a, a really wonderful, huge new TV and a great sound system. And he's inviting a bunch of people over to watch Mary Poppins Returns, which is uh, fresh out on Blu-ray. So uh, I, it's going to be really wonderful to see those two movies one night after the other, because uh, as anyone who has seen them both knows, there are many, many narrative connections between the two. I, I think that was done really wonderfully well by the these the scriptwriter of of Mary Poppins Returns, and also even the uh, uh, you know there's their musical references as well back to the old back to the old movie and um, Karen Dotrice who plays Jane Banks in the uh, in the original uh, it has a cameo in Mary Poppins Returns and uh, and of course famously Dick Van Dyke. Um, appears in both uh, in the most wonderful and creative fashion imaginable. But this, uh, you know, this was all about the orchestra, the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra conducted by Stuart Chaffetz, a name that's new to me. Uh, he, he did a wonderful job. There were a couple of places where it was a little slightly off. Uh, but, you know, I, another point I wanted to make is I think maybe we can think of this as the out-of-town the out of town tryout of this program because I, I've heard and read that it is going to be on the program of the uh, New York Philharmonic next season. So, uh, you know, that's uh, maybe that's the, you know, the quote-unquote Broadway <laughs> production. But I, uh, but I saw the Jersey tryout and I'm really glad that I got to see it uh, in that gorgeous hall and with that amazing score and and um so if you can't get to new brunswick today uh in in three hours from now uh 
go online and, and check out and see when the Philharmonic is doing at the New York Philharmonic. And I, I imagine it'll be done around the country um, because it's such a popular classic film and still with us and still in our hearts and minds. All right. And uh, to wrap up this morning, Michael, you also saw the Encompass New Opera a couple of weeks ago, the uh, gala event, and we didn't have time to chat about it last week. So give us your uh, take on what, what that evening was like. Yeah, well, I thought it was still Tommy to mention it because one of the uh, there were two honorees, uh, Laura Benanti and Bartlett Scherer, and uh, Laura Benanti is still in, and in, in fact has extended her stay in the Lincoln Center production, uh, Lincoln Center Theater production on My Fair Lady, which is directed by Bartlett Scherer. So um, she extended through July. Uh, so you have plenty of time to see her in that. She does not do eight performances a week, so uh, make sure that when you order tickets, uh, I would say really, really do anything possible to try to see her in that show. I'm sure the other, the alternate person is wonderful as well, but Laura is just giving a, a performance for the ages as Eliza Doolittle. Um, the Encompass New Opera, they do, uh, as per their their name, they do a lot of opera, but they also uh, do a lot of stuff that would could be considered crossover in musical theater. And every year they honor wonderful people, uh, They've honored Sheldon Harnick in the past, Charles Strauss, uh, Barbara Cook, people of that ilk. Uh, and they do it at the wonderful, beautiful National Arts Club, which it's always a pleasure just to be there. Uh, I mean, just because of this, the milieu and the, and the wonderful surroundings. But um, – yeah, this, so it, it this was for Laura Benanti and Bartlett Chair, uh, and uh, there are speeches, but also performances. Uh, uh, some of the performances uh, this were Christian Dante White, who is now playing Freddie Einsford Hill in. Uh, in My Fair Lady and whom I raved about a few weeks ago when I reviewed him in that. Uh, his He recreated his gorgeous rendition of On the Street Where You Live and sang it for um, Laura, who in this case was sitting about four feet away from him in the front row. So that was amazing. Uh, Maury Yeston was there. He's a big um, – he, he's heavily involved in Encompass New Opera. And he uh, played and sang – his beautiful song, Unusual Way from Nine, which was uh, a song that Laura sang in the revival of that show. Um, Marilyn May, the amazing 91-year-old Marilyn May, did a, 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 a My Fair Lady medley uh, and then she segued into getting to know you uh, from The King and I, and that was a good segue because uh, – uh, my Fair Lady, you know, represents both Laura and Bart Cher, whereas uh, Getting to Know You was is, is from The King and I, which Bart directed that previous beautiful production at Lincoln Center Theater uh, with Kelly O'Hara. So that was great. And then we had um, other performers. Whitney Bashore uh, did a stellar rendition of The Beauty Is from The Light in the Piazza, directed by Bartlett Cher. And this was really kind of special to me because sitting next to me while she sang that was Adam Gettle, 
who is kind of, I would say, sort of a, almost a phantom in the musical theater. We don't get to see him, uh, or at least I don't get to see him that often at events. And also he, uh, you know, he famously writes very slow and he has not had a new show uh, in, in quite some time. He did provide the music, uh, the background music for the current Broadway production of To Kill a Mockingbird. So that is something. Um, what else? There were opera selections. uh uh, Laura Benanti uh, sang with Bartlett Sher's daughters, uh, Lucia and Phoebe. She sang, I'm, uh, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair from South Pacific, another Bart Sher production. And th- those had some new lyrics in in it. And so that was really fun. Um, let's see. Oh, I had misspoken a couple of weeks ago and I mentioned this, that I had said that uh, just off the top of my head that uh, I guess that My Fair Lady was the first collaboration between Laura Benanti and Bartlett Sher, but no, I had I had I'm ashamed I'd forgotten women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And I guess the reason I forgot it is that it certainly didn't run very long. But that show had a lot of wonderful stuff in it, including Laura Laura's performance. And she spoke uh, at this Encompass New Opera event and she said she gave thanks to Bart uh, for, you know, for working with him in My Fair Lady, but also in Women on the Verge. And she said, um, you were the first person who knew I could be funny. And (laughs) and he replied uh, from the first row. He said, oh, that's not true. Other people knew you were funny. And Laura said, well, maybe my parents, but that's about it. So she credited him with uh, with showing audiences that she really can be really quite hilarious, aside from her beautiful singing and and her dramatic acting ability and her and her incredible physical beauty. Um, so she is a great she's a great uh great, great artist. And Bart Cher has been incredibly successful as well in both musical theater and opera. Uh, he's, he's done a lot, a lot of work uh, recently and over the past several years. And so I think these were two great honorees that they chose. And I'm very glad that I was there. So uh, Laura is going to be performing in concert in uh, London at the end of June. And ah. uh, I'm headed over to London to go see that. So, oh, wow. Very exciting. So she won't be in those days. <laughs> yes. It's check like your calendar. June 29th, June 30th, something like that. So, yeah. All right. Uh, before we wrap up and head on to trivia, Adam Feldman had the funniest tweet ever. Well, maybe funny, insightful. I wonder what he <laughs> saw recently. His tweet said, Hades and Persephone are Ben and Phyllis, and Orpheus and Eurydice are Buddy and Sally. So, <laughs> not true. sure what Adam saw recently. Can't imagine. Can't think of what it was. All right. So, before we head on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. Like that way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get your Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jennifer, Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com in the show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. I put in those uh, link to Sarah Holdren's review of Oklahoma um, Zachary Stewart's uh, uh, interview with Patrick Vale, uh, who plays Judd in Oklahoma, and the uh, top the topic of incel. 
and all the other things that we've talked about today. So let's get on to trivia. Peter, where are you now? Well, I'll be in San Antonio when this airs, so that's why we're talking a little earlier. Okay, so do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Yes, indeed. A real-life and very famous performer who's long deceased is currently being portrayed in a Broadway musical. This performer actually did one and only Broadway musical, but it was the same theater where the performer is now being portrayed. Who's the performer, the current show, the show from long ago, and the theater? Well, we're talking about Lucille Ball, who was mentioned in The Cher Show, which is playing at the Neil Simon Theater, which used to be the Alvin Theater, where Lucille Ball, the real Lucille Ball, did Wildcat back in 1960 and 61. So, Ron Fassler was the first to get it, followed by Jack Leshner, Kerry Winslow, Brigadude, Doug Strassler and Alyssa Marr, also known as Broadway's cutest cup couple making a comeback after weeks of ignorance and failure. (laughs) Tony Janicki, now back in Chicago with Time to Kill. Uh, Carrie Wong, Kathy Jones, Brian Kess, Alex Lauer, and Micah Wannis. So that's last week. This week, two Tony losing musicals began with the orchestra playing a song that had actually been dropped from the score before the Broadway opening. What are the shows and the names of the songs? All right. So if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. Thanks, Peter. Get back safely. All right. Thanks. Bye. So on behalf of Genetessa Fox, Michael Portantier, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm in a holiday That I want.